Well, good evening, guys. It's a, it's a joy to be with you. It's a joy to see all of your faces. It's a joy to sing with you. Love to hear you guys singing. It makes me think of uh, what heaven, just a tiny taste of heaven will be like when we all sing together there, lifting our voices together to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's so good to be with you tonight, and it's a privilege of mine to be able to say to you, please pick up your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew, chapter 16. The title of our little lesson tonight is The Most Important Question Ever. The Most Important Question Ever. And our theme tonight, well, first of all, let me ask you this. What's the theme? You should know this by now. What's the theme of the Gospel of Matthew? Yes. Jesus as King. He is King. So our theme tonight is King Jesus building his church upon a fisherman's confession. Kind of strange sounding, isn't it? But it's true. And we're going to find out. Why is this? How is this? King Jesus is building his church upon a fisherman's confession. Questions, questions, questions. We all have questions, don't we? Some big questions, some small questions. Some we'll ask our youth leaders, right? Some of us will ask our parents questions. Uh, some will ask our peers, one another of the same age, questions, questions, questions. But we'll especially ask Alexa or Echo or Google, right? The important questions that we have of the, of the day or the week. What's the score? Or when did so-and-so die? Or whatever it might be. Questions, questions, questions. So, I got on the Google machine the other day. The computer and the internet, in case you didn't know. Uh, got on there, and I typed in, what is the most important question to ever ask in the world? And there was a series of of, of list of, of answers that came up. And this is what came up in the top ten. What is reality? What is life? Is the universe endless? Who am I? Why am I here? How should I live? What happens after you die? And then this one came up a ton. Just the question, why? Why this? Why that? Just, just why? That sounds like me and you, right? Why? Why? We will see in a moment that the most important question isn't any of these. And, and the most, in question, most important question in the world isn't a question that you and I ask, but it's one that Jesus asks in order to cause a fisherman to give a confession, which is then the foundation upon which he will build his church. So, we'll hear Jesus asking eternity's most important question two times in our passage tonight. So I hope you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 16, and we begin in verses 13 and 14, which, which brings us to point number one, Q&A number one. We all like Q&As, right? Well, here's the greatest Q&A right here. Q&A number one. 
what the people say about Jesus. What the people say about Jesus. Verses 13 and 14. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, the disciples said, some say John the Baptist, others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. We'll stop there. Now, after many days now of preaching and performing many miracles, as you guys have seen the past several weeks, giving sight to the blind, making the lame leap, and multiplying a few breadcrumbs to feed thousands, right? Jesus now stops here in the middle of town, and he asks his disciples, Hey, guys, what's the word on the street about me? Now, previously, you'll remember this probably a couple months ago in your study in Matthew. In chapter 12, the word on the street was that Jesus was a friend of Satan. He was a partner with Satan because he was casting out demons. And you guys learned about that. You understand that now. But now, the disciples are telling Jesus only the good opinions that were circulating around town about who he is. And the people's response here in verse 14, it's right in line with the popular expectations of what the Messiah would be like, look like, when he comes. Because Moses said, Moses, all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses said that a prophet greater than him would come to truly save his people. Now, look at these, this list, just real briefly, okay? The first one in verse 14. John the Baptist. Is he John the Baptist? Because of his purity of heart and, and passionate preaching of the truth? Uh, is he Elijah? Because Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 speaks of how Elijah was considered the, the miracle worker of all miracle workers. And that he was the one that was to come. Or is he Jeremiah because of his precise prophecies and judgments that came to pass? Now, these three guys, John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah, they sound a lot like who? Because of the description of what they've done. Who do they, they kind of sound like? Sunday school answer? Who wants to give it? Jesus! It sounds like Jesus. So these are all good guesses by the people of Caesarea Philippi, but they're still light years off. Help me, help me understand this. Why are the people around town, Caesarea Philippi, saying, oh, he's John the Baptist, he's Elijah. Why are they light years off about who Jesus is? Even though they're close, and they're in the close proximity, why are they light years off? Some obvious answers. Why are they, why are they wrong? Yes. Jesus is the Son of God. Exactly. What else? Based upon that truth. Yeah. Good. Doesn't even compare. Yes. Good. That applies to a lot. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Good. Yeah. Good thinking. Yeah. Good. They didn't they didn't claim that, did they? Very good. Yes. Yes. 
Okay. There you go. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good, 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 yeah. Yep, 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 good. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Sure, yeah. Yeah, perhaps. One more. Good, yeah, absolutely. Very good. You guys have been reading your Bibles, haven't you? It's very true. You know, based upon all that you said, another obvious one, I think, too, is that um, Jesus is perfect. And he's never sinned, right? And everyone else, all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? Except him. Now, these guys aren't Jesus. But notice this, too. Did you notice in the text, Jesus doesn't get angry about the report of the people's thoughts about who Jesus is? Because they were a foreshadowing of the Messiah. They were little types and pictures of the Messiah that was to come. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were Jesus, I'd be like, guys, you're so off, it's not even funny. Elijah, John the Baptist, yeah, they're all great things, but they're not me. It's like comparing a treehouse to a house made of gold. Yeah, the treehouse is, yeah, it's a house, but this is a mansion made of gold. It doesn't even compare, right? Well, with that in mind, did you notice the description that Jesus gives himself in verse, backing up to verse 13 really quickly? What's the description that Jesus gives himself? He calls himself the, yeah, the Son of Man. Did you know that the Son of Man is the main title, the main way that Jesus loved to refer to himself? And it's used almost a hundred times in the New Testament, referring to Jesus as the Son of Man. And we learn three vital truths from this title, the Son of Man. He's human. He's humble. He's God. <laughs> First, real quickly, his humanity. Shows us his humanity. He was truly a human being. He was truly man. He became flesh. John 1, 14. And that includes his humility. That is, he is the eternal son of God. Having no beginning, always existed, eternal with the Father, the eternal Son of God stooped from heaven to earth. And it also shows us, the title of the Son of Man shows us his deity. You know how? The simple word, the. The. He is the Son of Man. Jesus is the supreme example of all that God intended mankind to be. He's the embodiment of truth and grace. In him, Colossians 2.9 says, all the fullness of deity, the fullness of God, lives in bodily form. Only the Son of Man is able to forgive sins, Matthew 9.6. 
Only the Son of Man is Lord, Mark 2.28. Only the Son of Man came to save lives and rise from the dead, Mark 9.9. Only the Son of Man executes full and perfect judgment, John 5.27. Only the Son of Man sits at the right hand of the Mighty One, and He is coming on the clouds of heaven, Matthew 26.64. This is the Son of Man. So, When the disciples report to Jesus that the people are saying that he is John the Baptist, Elijah, or Jeremiah, they're close. But it shows they've been, it it does show that they've been reading their Bibles, but yet they're still light years off. And so, this brings us to the next question. Point number two. Q&A number two. What Peter says about Jesus. We've seen what the people have said about Jesus. Let's see what Peter says about Jesus in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Here is the biggest, most important question of all time and the universe. And our dear fisherman friend Peter gets it right. He speaks up out of the crowd, out of the disciples like he normally does. He speaks out. And he nails it. He gets an A plus on this exam. And what does he say? What is the answer? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christ. What is the Christ? The Christ means Messiah. What's Messiah mean? <laughs> it means anointed one. What's anointed one mean? <laughs> means one who has favor with God. Perfect favor with God. Because this is the eternal Son of God. This perfect relationship eternally that has never been broken and that has always existed. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Think of it. For hundreds and hundreds of years, people thought, you read the Old Testament, people thought, uh, uh, Moses would be the perfect Savior King. Yeah, 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 Moses will save us. Yeah, Moses will do the, not only this Exodus, but the greatest Exodus. Yeah, Moses, yeah. Okay, Moses failed. He dies. He sins. (laughs) Not Moses. What about David? Let's look to David. Oh, look, David's one of the greatest kings that's ever, maybe it's David. Maybe the Messiah is, is David, even though we read the scriptures now today and we see David was looking to the true Messiah that was to come. Maybe it's David. No. Nope. Long story short, it ends up being Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the promised seed who would crush Satan at the cross. The one who was promised long ago who would rescue hell-bound sinners. He alone is the Christ. And then Peter goes on one more phrase and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. As opposed to all the dead false gods that people make up all over the world. And this is why the phrase the living God is quoted hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Now notice this. Jesus has just referred to himself as the Son of Man, right? And now Peter is calling him the son of the living God. Is that a contradiction? Absolutely not. You know why? Because Jesus is the God-man. Genesis 1.26. He was there in the beginning. In eternity past, 
Jesus, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, to let us make known in our own image. Jesus created you. Fast forward, skipping so many texts. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. The writer of Hebrews says, referring to the eternal Son of God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and your righteous scepter and your kingdom is forever. Speaking of the eternal Son of God. But how did Peter know this? How did Peter know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? How did he know this? (laughs) Was he smart enough? to connect all the dots of the Old Testament scriptures and say, you're the Christ. Was he wise enough? Was he intelligent enough to understand and confess who the Son of Man was and is? Are you? Are you smart enough to just know that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Is it just your smarts? Is it because your mom and dad are such good teachers, your pastor's such a good teacher, that that's why you know Well, listen to what Caiaphas, the high priest, he who knew this Old Testament scriptures better than you and I even know tonight. Listen to what Caiaphas, the high priest, said to Jesus right to his face. I adjure you by the living God. (laughs) He's saying this to the living God. You got the picture? Caiaphas is saying, I adjure you by the living God right to Jesus' face. That you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. (laughs) So, get this. You have a fisherman who says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You have Caiaphas. One who knows the Old Testament way better than Peter. And he's saying, Jesus, you're a blasphemer. How can this be? How can this be? Jesus gives us the answer in verse 17. And this brings us to a triple blessing explosion. This is our next section. The triple blessing explosion of how we get the answer. How is it that Peter knows and can declare this so confidently and from the depths of his heart? But then Caiaphas, someone who knows the scriptures, says, you're blaspheming. I don't believe in you. How can this be? This brings us to blessing number one in verse 17, which is, a perplexing promise. A perplexing promise. Verse 17. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. <laughs> now, just real quickly, as you'll, you'll see this in a moment, he just said, Simon, son of Barjona. Okay, this is Peter's old life. This is his old name. Okay, Simon, son of Jonah, or son of John, okay? He calls him that, and then later you're going to see a little name change to Peter, and you'll see, you'll see why, okay? But he says, blessed are you. This is blessing number one, a perplexing promise. What does the word blessed mean? In your own words, guys, what, what do you think the word blessed or blessed means? Yeah. Absolutely. Something you didn't work for. A present. Good. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. A favor that you don't deserve. Absolutely. 
this is blessedness that we're talking about. Okay? Good. Let me make it even more simple for you. You know what it actually just in one word means in the Hebrew if you translate it? It's, that, it's our favorite song that we sing every birthday. At every birthday. Um, I hate, I, I've come to hate the song now, but what's the first word of the song? Yeah, happy. <laughs> That's right. Happy. Peter, happy. True happiness. Not happiness that's based on a circumstance and, oh, I got to play in my, or I got to do this. No. Blessed, happy, eternally happy are you. Because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. A gift given by God brings true happiness. And this personal promise to Peter is the gift of his eyes being opened to truly know, identify, and confess who Jesus is. And the ability not only to know this, love this, believe this, but to then joyfully declare this from your lips, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that confession and conviction, guys, of knowing who Jesus is, is not because you and I were smart enough or wise enough to see this life-changing reality in the Scriptures. It has nothing to do with your smartness, your, your own wisdom, your own intelligence. Why? Look at what the verse says. It says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. What's flesh and blood mean? It's just, it means not by the wisdom of man, not by cleverness or your careful study, or because you were born a Jew, or because you were born into a Christian family, that you know that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But you know how, what it's by? Are you ready for this? How do you know that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God? An apocalypse. By an apocalypse. Perhaps you've heard that word before. It's the word revealed. Uncovering. Showing forth. It was revealed to you by God the Father who is in heaven that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because, guys, listen, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 to 16, talks about how the natural man, the one who's dead in their sins and transgressions, cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. Does not receive them. Might be able to see it on the surface and say, oh, Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Lord, and you can, like, say that with your lips, but to truly mean it and love it and believe it has to come by God the Father has to come by His Spirit, has to come by His Word. So this is blessing number one, after Peter's confession, this perplexing promise. Why why is it a perplexing promise? You know why, guys? Because mankind is is used to, to earning and getting things on his own, and understanding things on his own. But for God to do this, and to reveal the truth, the life-saving truth of the gospel in your heart, This is perplexing. It's the only reason you know me truly and can make the greatest confession because God alone has given you the faith to believe and the eyes to see. If you believe tonight, it's because God has given you the faith to believe and the eyes to see. Blessed, blessed, happy are you. And this brings us to blessing number two in verse 18. A powerful promise. A powerful promise. Look at verse 18. 
I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Question, (laughs) what is this rock? What is this rock? I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Yes. Are you sure? Are you sure? Yeah. Peter's confession. Okay? Now, let's, let's talk about that just, just, just for a minute, okay? A quick, quick understanding in the Greek here, okay? In the Greek, it looks like this. You are Petros, and upon Petros, I will build my church. Very close sounding, isn't it? But there's a huge, ginormous difference. You are Petros, and upon this Petros, I will build my church. So what's happening here? Jesus, are you being, you're confusing me. No, if, 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 if Jesus here is giving a play on words in that a bolder like truth came from the mouth of one who was called a small stone. The word Peter means small stone. And then Jesus says, upon this foundation, this rock, this mountainside, of what you just said, I will build my church. Now, now listen, God did use Peter greatly, didn't he? In the foundation of the church and the, and the apostles. It was Peter who first proclaimed the gospel on the day of Pente- Pentecost, Acts 2. Peter was also the first to take the gospel to the Gentiles, Acts 10. In a sense, Peter was the, the rock, the foundation of the church. But Peter himself, listen, calls Jesus the chief cornerstone in 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter himself, the chief cornerstone of any building was that upon which the building was anchored. If Christ declared himself to be the cornerstone, how could Peter be the rock upon which the church was built? So what is this powerful promise then that Jesus gives to Peter? He says, I will build my church. It's not Peter's church. It's not anybody else's church. He says, I will build my church on the rock, the solid foundation of your confession. And what was his confession? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon that truth, upon the true identity of who Jesus Christ is, I will build my church. And look at the last part of the verse. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, In ancient times, the cities were surrounded by walls with gates. And in battles, the gates of these cities would usually be the first place their enemies would assault. This was because the protection of the city was determined by the strength or power of its gates. And the name Hades... Originally, the name of the God who presided over the realm of the dead and was often referred to as the house of Hades, the house of the dead. In the New Testament, Hades is the realm of the dead. And in this verse, Hades or hell is represented as a mighty city with its gates representing its power to hold in its captives. With that in mind, 
though Jesus would be crucified and buried, he would rise from the dead and build his church. Jesus is emphasizing the fact that the powers of death could not hold him in. He bursted through those gates. So, not only would the church be established in spite of the powers of hell, but the church would actually thrive in spite of the powers. The church, try to understand this, will never fail. Uh, there's, you've heard of persecution of the third world church and churches across, brothers and sisters across the seas being persecuted and killed and heads being sliced off and being murdered for their faith in Jesus Christ, you'd think that that would stop the church of Jesus Christ, right? Whoa, let's stop worshiping the Christ, the Son of the living God, because we're going to die. You know what it does? It actually does the exact opposite. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church actually grows stronger than the gates of hell. Because of its threat of death, tries to take over. So, understand this. The church will never fail. Though generation after generation experiences the power of physical death, yet other generations will arise to keep on building the church. And it will continue until it has fulfilled its mission on earth as Jesus has commanded that it will. Jesus is declaring here that death has no power to hold God's people captive. Its gates are not strong enough to overpower and keep imprisoned the church of God. The Lord has conquered death. And because death no longer is master over him, it is no longer master over those who belong to him. Romans chapter 6. If you belong to him, hell cannot overtake you. The powers of hell cannot overtake you. Death cannot overtake you. Listen, Satan will always use the power of death to try to destroy the church of Christ. Always. But we have this powerful promise from Jesus that his church will prevail. That's a powerful promise, guys. But real quickly now, what is the church? What is the church? I mean, what does it do? Talk to me. What is the church? Yeah. The church spreads the gospel. Good. Say again. House of God. Good. Helps to keep each other accountable. Good. Group of believers that worship him. Come on. Yes, come on. Bride of Christ. Oh. Good, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Teaches the Word of God. Uh, church is a part of that. Yes. Good. You guys have already touched a couple of them. I'm only going to touch on a couple of them right here, okay? As far as a uh, description of the church is. You know what the word church means church in the Greek means those who are called out of darkness called out rescued out of darkness 
you're called out because before being in Christ, you lived and dwelt in darkness. And you were under the, the power of hell and of, of your father, the devil, who was a liar from the beginning, John 8. You were called out of darkness into his marvelous light, into the kingdom of Christ, Colossians 1.13. The church is the sheep or the flock of God, John 10. The church is, 1 John 3, the children of God, the bride of Christ, Ephesians 5. The church of God is called the family of God, Ephesians 3. Now, Acts chapter 2.42 describes to us in simple terms what the church does. This is amazing. What does the church do? What's the, what's the pattern and practice of the church supposed to be? Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, okay, the preaching, teaching of the Word of God, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayer. <laughs> Isn't that cool? That's, what the, that's, that, that's what the main thing that the, that the church does. And you guys have already mentioned it. What does the church do? We gather regularly to hear the truth of Jesus Christ, His Word, His Gospel, the only Gospel. The church spends time together, shares meals together. We like that one, don't we? Food, you know, wherever there's food, that really brings good fellowship, right? I mean, it's a command, right? It's, this is what we do. We, we eat together, right? It makes the fellowship really sweet. <laughs> we pray together, Acts 2.42. We help each other, be generous towards one another. The rest of Acts chapter 2 explains that. We worship God together. We are to be doing light in a dark world together. And we witness God saving people. Are you thankful for the church? Because it's Jesus' church. And he said, I'm building my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You, if you're in Christ tonight, you are a part of the universal body of Christ, which is the church. One little segment here we are today, and I, I would pray to God that every one of you have repented truly and placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. And be a part of the family, the children of God. So we have the blessing of knowing who God is through His Son. He reveals to us the living God. We have the blessing of the church which belongs to Christ and hell can't overpower it. And now we have the blessing of a privileged promise, which brings us to blessing number three. Verse 19. A privileged promise. Look at what he says here. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. You know, keys are um, wonderful things. <laughs> keys are. Uh, unless you lose them, of course, like I do um, a lot of the time. But what is this they say here? I will give you the keys. Keys. Well, well tell me really quickly, what are, keys, what are keys used for? What are keys good for? Locking things. Okay, what else? Yes. Unlocking them. Yes. Hiding things. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That. Yes, you're right. 
That's a, that's a good uh, feature there. Yeah. Unsetting. Yes, you're right. Okay, one more. Yes, to be very specific. Electric power motorcycle. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, I think you guys get the point, okay? Keys either forbids or allows something. Grants X access to or denies something, right? It locks or unlocks something. But what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is saying to Peter here? Well, Jesus, remember, is laying the foundation of the church based on the truth of his identity. And Peter and the rest of the disciples will be the leaders of this new institution, the church. And Jesus here is giving them authority to open the doors to heaven and invite the world to enter. So it's important to know how one enters the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Holy Spirit works through the word of God to bring about new life in the dead sinner. And the message is all about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is specifically speaking to Peter here. So it's significant that in the book of Acts, Peter is the the figure prominently used in the opening of the doors of the kingdom of heaven. In three major accounts, these keys were used. Check it out real quick. Acts 2. Peter preaches in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 Jews were saved that day. His preaching unlocked the doors of heaven. Number two, later in Acts, the Samaritans received the gospel, and Peter was there for this event. Peter unlocks the doors of heaven for the Samaritans. And number three, then in Acts chapter 10, Peter brings the gospel to a Roman soldier household, and they too there receive the Holy Spirit Peter had unlocked the door for the Gentiles, for the rest of the world then. The keys that Jesus had given him worked in each case. This is a privileged promise. (laughs) Given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You guys think it's pretty cool to have the keys to that first car of yours or that motorcycle or whatever it may be. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty fun. These are the keys to the kingdom of heaven. At the same time, keys can be used to to lock doors as well, as is mentioned. You see, part of the gospel message is that faith is necessary. Without faith in Christ, the door to heaven is shut and barred. So as the apostles preached the gospel, this is the key term in here, the preaching of the gospel, those who responded in faith and repentance were granted access to the kingdom of heaven. Yet those who continued to harden their hearts and reject the gospel of God's saving grace were shut out of the kingdom. This binding and loosing now. Do you see this in in the text here tonight? The binding and loosing. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you... Loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does this talk about? Well, basically, in a nutshell, it reflects heaven's perspective on the matter of salvation and God's commandments. 
Something is either allowed or not. Access is granted or denied. And this, this term, this phrase, bound and loosed, you're going to see it again in several weeks or a couple months here as you continue your study, your study in Matthew. Because in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, it talks about church discipline. Church discipline. Okay? And in church discipline, you might think, oh, that's like terrible. That's like, that doesn't sound good. No, it's actually good. It's very good. <laughs> it, you are not a church if you don't practice church discipline. What does that look like? What does church discipline look like? It looks like this. You see a brother or a sister sinning and not walking in the truth. What do you do? What do you do if you see a brother or sister? You know that they're living in a, a, a pattern of practice of, of disobedience, of rebellion to God and His Word. And they say that they believe in the Christ, the Son of the living God. What do you do? Do you know what the Scripture says in Matthew 18? We're going to get there soon. It says you go to them in private. And you confront them in love. You tell them the truth. Repent and love. That doesn't happen. You come back with, with, with another one or two friends. Who knows that they are still living habitually in sin? And you beg them, you plead with them to repent. And it doesn't happen. And then, then you bring it before the church for the purpose of restoration. To call them back. To repent. To come back. So... Get this, understand this. This might be feel weird and awkward. You might think, well, I'm only, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, how old you are. You might think, well, I can't do that. Really? Yes, you can. If you're in Christ, you're called to do that. You have the, kings, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. How do I use them? Are you ready? By speaking the gospel truth, calling sin for what it is, and calling sinners to repent. And by doing this, you are in agreement with heaven. You are in agreement with God. And you are either binding or loosing in that situation. And it's not that you make anything happen. It's that you're simply in agreement with heaven as you speak the truth in love to a brother or sister who has not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, or who has, who has not repented of their sins. So in all of this human key turning, the turning of the keys of the knowledge of God, we are doing what God has decided should come to pass. Therefore, the believer takes his stand on the bedrock of Jesus' word, that is, his identity and every word that comes from his mouth. And you have that in your lap tonight. As God's word is spoken, do you know what's happening? As God's word is, is being spoken, the key of heaven is being turned and the kingdom is being opened to people's lives. It's being opened to your life tonight. And the truth is that some will be bound in their sin, but others will be loosed, freed. You'll be able to sing that wonderful line from Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Once was blind, but now I see. 
As we wrap up this lesson tonight, I want to remind you that the greatest question of all time is what Jesus said to his disciples. Where he says, but who do you say that I am? That's great. Everybody else is saying this and saying that and saying this. And Jesus tonight, by his word, is laser beaming you. And it's not some vague general thing, oh, the teacher's up there saying, yeah, he's quoting scripture and it doesn't apply to me. It applies directly to your individual soul. Who do you say that Jesus is? Listen, (laughs) the world has its opinion of who Christ is. Religion, religion has its opinion. But more importantly, guys, our lives issue a constant verdict of who Jesus Christ is. Our lives speak of what we think of who God and the persons in the church of Christ is. Our lives speak it. What, what do your attitudes and actions say about Christ? Perhaps your actions say Jesus is a person that you run to when in need. But for the rest of the life of my life, when life's easy, uh, he has to fit into my program if he fits in at all. Perhaps you have a right opinion of Jesus Christ tonight, but you're not listening to his demands, nor do you love his word. But you have a right opinion about him. You can speak the truth about him. What does your life declare about who Jesus is? Because every thought, action, attitude, and deed reflects what we think about who he is. So, how do we respond? Number one, let your character match your confession. Let your character match your confession. Listen, (laughs) Peter, Peter, he's the one who always spoke up and he always, most often, spoke the truth and spoke it well. Peter stumbled and he stumbled badly, didn't he? Even to the point of denying who Jesus was and he was cursing. I do not know him. When not just days before, he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we see next week, oh, he was used as a mouthpiece for Satan. What's going on here? Peter is a sinner in need of the grace of Jesus Christ, just like you and me. But let your character match your confession. 1 John 1, 6 says, if we say we have fellowship with him, That is, we know him, we love him, we love his word, we love obeying him. If we say we have fellowship with him, with Jesus, yet walk in darkness, disobedience, rebellion, habitual sin, no conviction, no conscience. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie. 
you do not practice the truth. Perhaps some of you tonight need to repent and start practicing the truth because you are the truth and power. So you repent. You put off that sin. You renew your mind with the truth. And you clothe yourself in righteousness of Christ. And you move forward in grace-motivated obedience because you love Him. Because He first loved you. So let your character match your confession. Let your life match your lips or what you say about who Jesus is. And number two, last one, be comforted by Christ's power to build His church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That should bring you and I much, 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 much joy tonight that you're in his hands and hell cannot overpower you. The believers, if you're a believer, the believers, as 1 Peter 2 says, are stones which make up the church and we are anchored upon the precious cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ, who is the son of the living God. And you and I, the church, have the living word of God to confirm this life-saving, life-transforming truth. You have it. You have it in your laps tonight. And you have it in your hearts. Let's pray. Lord, you're our, you're our Savior. You're our Captain. Help us, Lord, to stand in the strength you've given this shield of faith and belt of truth will stand against the devil's lies. Help us, Lord, to reach out to those in darkness. That's where we once were. Knowing that you will build your church and, and you will have the prize for which you died, the inheritance of nations. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. Lord, be glorified in our lives tonight in repentance and obedience. And Lord, may we be exalted in not only the confession of the truth of who you are in our, by our lips, but may you be glorified in our lives as well. It's in your name we pray.